Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Lily. I usually work behind the scenes as podcast manager, but I'm stepping in for Alex today while she's out celebrating her birthday in the sun. Other than drinking my body weight in coffee and tea, you'll usually find me reaching out to scientists, researchers, and community members to beg them, well, ask them nicely to take time out of their busy lives to come onto the podcast. It's great to finally be able to interview one of our amazing guests, and boy, do we have a good one for you today. In this episode, we're talking to Ophelia Gunn from the University of Edinburgh, who's studying life on Mars for her PhD. So does that mean there's life on Mars, I hear you ask? Well, keep listening to find out. During our chat, Ophelia explained some of the ways that life in space can be studied from Earth. She had a go at busting myths about space, and patiently answered all of our questions about life in the universe. If you listen to the end, you'll get to hear one of the biggest aha moments of my life, and I sound like an absolute idiot in the process. I'm hoping at least one other person out there will benefit from my naivety. If you listen right to the end, you'll actually get to meet another form of life. This one being from Earth. No idea what we're talking about? Then buckle up, sit back, relax, and enjoy your ride to space in 3, 2, 1. But before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One supplying laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS, and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. Thanks very much for having me, guys. My name is Ophelia Gunn, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm a PhD student who's supervised by Charles Coquel at the UK Centre for Astrobiology which is a research centre at the University of Edinburgh. What do you study in a nutshell? So I research the habitability and other astrobiological implications of potential liquid water microenvironments on Mars. And I achieve this by observing the behaviour of liquid water under physically simulated Martian environments. And the three main environments that I study are brine evaporite structures, fluid inclusions in ice and rock pore spaces. Can you explain what astrobiology is? Yes, so astrobiology is an interdisciplinary field of scientific research, which among other things aims to determine whether life exists beyond Earth and the origin and future of life in the universe. That is so cool. How do you study what you study? What is the, um, the environment that you work in? Yeah, so I I work with physical simulations, so actual simulations in the lab producing analog environments, which means just environments that are as similar as possible in some way to the particular Martian environment that I'm looking at. So I have a few ways of doing that. One of them is the Mars chamber, which is basically a low pressure chamber that we can put experiments into, expose them to low pressure and see what the result is for whatever experiment we're doing, for example, I look at brine evaporites, which are the salt structures, the salt crystal structures left behind after the water is evaporated from a brine. And these can behave differently at low pressure than at ambient pressure. So I can put them into the Mars chamber, expose it to low pressure for a week or so, and see how these structures behave, basically. So (laughs) we also have a UV lamp, which we can use to simulate Uh, Martian solar irradiation conditions um, and I expose material on ice to these UV uh, or solar radiation conditions. 
Do they all happen in like this Mars chamber you mentioned, which sounds really cool, by the way. But can you control all these different parameters within the same chamber? Or is this kind of individual controlled experiments that you do? So we have the old chamber and the new chamber. And the solar radiation, we can also control in the old chamber. So we can do both low pressure and solar radiation. Um, in the new chamber, we can't do solar radiation, but we can do gas flow through. Um, so we can simulate the actual composition of the Martian atmosphere in that chamber, as well as low pressure. But yes, yeah, so some some of those parameters can be done simultaneously with some. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned that you studied or you study Martian brines um, or the crystalline structure of the leftover crystal deposits. I, if I understood correctly, what is it that you're studying within those? Like, why do you study that specific thing? There's evidence to suggest that Martian brines existed at some time in Mars's past. There are salt deposits that have been observed on the Martian surface. So the reason I look at these brines is to determine whether they could have been habitable in the past to some Martian microorganisms, or if they could have preserved Martian microorganisms that could still persist and maybe fossils or preserved biosignatures could be found now. So that's sort of why I look at, at brines. And what I'm specifically doing is looking at their evaporate structures. And basically, I'm doing that just to see if, if they have any interesting implications, if they produce any interesting structures and what those structures could mean for potential mar- Martian life or m- microorganisms. So as an example, magnesium sulfate is a salt which the evaporate it produces the structure is basically a crust. It just crusts over the top of the fluid and that prevents evaporation from the fluid or it significantly reduces the evaporation rate from the fluid. So then that means you've got liquid water persisting under this crust for much longer than it would have been if there wasn't a crust there. So that's just one property of the brines that could be interesting um, in extending the life of potential Martian microorganisms if they did exist at any time. Does this mean for our listeners that you have not found life on Mars yet? (laughs) There's definitely, as far as I know, been absolutely no life found on Mars, unfortunately. (laughs) Oh, damn. (laughs) Yeah, that would be some big news. Sci-fi fans everywhere are very upset. (laughs) What kind of people do you work with? I work with quite a range of people. In my group, it's actually very (laughs) female-dominated. I think at the moment, apart from our supervisor and one postdoc, we're all women. Oh, wow. And I think there's maybe 12 plus of us at the moment. I'm not 100% sure how many there are. We've had a few new people join recently. so That's super cool. It is. It's, it's good. Um, it's, it's definitely not an issue that I've noticed in astrobiology. I mean, I could be wrong. I suppose I haven't met everybody, but certainly at Edinburgh, <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty good. So in my group, there's not so much focus on Mars anymore. No, no. I think it might be going out of fashion. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think is sad. <laughs> um, although saying that, of course, Perseverance landed last year. So um, I guess it is still going strong. Perseverance being the, the craft that landed on Mars last year and is doing sort of habitability work in a river delta, I think. My group actually has a real range of different the people in it have a range of different backgrounds. So we've had geologists, uh, physicists, biochemists, that sort of thing. Everyone's looking at different things. We've got uh, people looking at meteorites, um, 
and the nutrients that can be derived for that microorganisms can derive from meteorites and um, people looking at really cold environments, different extreme environments, that sort of thing, and mm. also at how proteins behave as well. That's so cool. Like everything to do with life, basically, is what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, very much. It's, it, is, it is very interdisciplinary. Is this research driven by curiosity or is there kind of a practical application in mind for the research? Sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to see the bigger picture when you get so into what you're doing and mm. you're doing this tiny niche thing, um, you can sort of lose sight of like, oh, actually, this is working towards a goal. But the goal is so huge. It's not like you're working towards it yourself. It takes so many mm -hmm. people to work towards that kind of thing. So I think that we are all working towards that goal of finding life in the universe mm -hmm. or not finding it, hopefully finding it. <laughs> Sorry, extraterrestrial <laughs> life. Obviously, there's life in the universe on Earth, but <laughs> finding finding it elsewhere is, I suppose, and also finding the origin of life. That's quite a big oh, okay. aspect of astrobiology as well, is looking at how life actually emerged and how it's evolved, because then that's important for finding places where extraterrestrial life could be. If you can determine the factors that produce life, then you can look for places that have all of those factors. So I suppose we are all working towards that sort of goal. And that, I suppose, is driven by curiosity, right? Everybody wants to know if aliens are real. <laughs> we hope that you might answer that for us in this uh, podcast, but maybe further work needed. <laughs> well, I think I think aliens are real. I'll go out there and say ah. that. Tell us more. <laughs> it's not just my bias of wanting them to be real because it's the field I work in. I just think statistically, it just it's, it's too impossible for, the, for life not to exist in such a huge universe with so many suns and so many planets around those suns how could life only have emerged in one place because there must be there must be planets out there that i mean there are planets out there that are very similar to earth so why would it be that they had only emerged on our earth i just don't think that that is very likely given how big the universe is so yeah aliens are real <laughs> right podcast over we're done thank you <laughs> No, I'm joking. <laughs> these, these are my views, by the way, not the views of the UK Centre for Astrobiology. <laughs> I don't know what they think. <laughs> How did you get into the field? Like, what was it that made you inspired to study astrobiology to PhD level? Um, so I was absolutely obsessed with space when I was young, in that way that, like, only four-year-olds can be. Like, you just absolutely devour everything, and you can remember it all, and you just tell everybody that you know every single fact that you know and they're not yeah. interested but that doesn't matter um <laughs> i guess i uh that interest just eventually led to me studying astrophysics which is what i did at university um, i went to the university of st andrews and i did my undergrad and masters there and i was getting towards the end of my masters and i was sort of floundering about not really sure what i was going to do um and i came across hmm. the description for this phd and something just clicked and i was like oh yeah that's, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, it felt like the natural progression to what I was doing. So I applied to it. Um, it's the only thing I applied to, which I would not recommend. Wow. Stressful. <laughs> but it was the only thing I wanted to do. So that's what I did. Yeah. And that's how I ended up doing it. When you know, you know. Basically by chance. But I just happened to see the description. What advice would you give to your younger self? But it seems like you've already gotten to the place where you wanted to be or... 
or is that well, an assumption that's wrong? <laughs> yeah, in some ways I have. This this is what I wanted to do when I was four. <laughs> um, I think I would say to myself, I mean, if we're, if we're going back to when I was four, then I'd be like, don't worry, you know? Actually, no, because I had so much confidence when I was four that I absolutely was like, of course I'm going to be an physicist, <laughs> obviously. Um, <laughs> so I don't, don't need to give any advice to four-year-old me. Um, but I would say for when I was younger, maybe when I was at university, I'd say probably don't mm. stress out so much, be a bit mm-hmm. less stressed. It's very easy to say that in hindsight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's def- I think it's just very easy to get worked up and stressed mm-hmm. when you can't see the future clearly. You mentioned that you weren't entirely sure whether you'd do a postdoc after this. Is that kind of part of the influence of that, the culture of academia, or is it that you've kind of got other ideas for industrial applications you'd like to go into or other companies? Yeah, it's definitely a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm keeping my options open at the moment. I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to do. Um, I'm looking into postdocs, but also, yeah, industrial jobs. There's a lot of satellite companies in Scotland at the oh, moment. Oh, cool. There's the sort of, I think there's a new spaceport opening. Um, yeah, it's it's quite an industry, in especially in Glasgow, small satellite companies. So, of course, I could just, there, there are so many options. I could go into something completely different. Yeah. Uh, like tech consulting or... Would you ever want to go into space yourself? I get dreadfully travel sick, even in a car. So I don't think that that's an option for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If travel sickness wasn't a factor, then yeah, I would definitely go to space. Are there any misconceptions that you want clarified or any kind of myths that you want tackled from your field of work? Yes. At the moment, you cannot grow potatoes on Mars. Uh, yeah, I get. I do get asked that one quite a lot, <laughs> or at least, at least as far as I, as far as evidence suggests, so far, <laughs> the surfaces of Mars would not be a good place to be trying to grow potatoes at the moment. I would say peculiar geological formations, um, as much as they might look humanoid, they do not constitute good evidence for life on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> You study these brines, but I'm interested to know, like, how do you make the brine or where do you get the brine from? Because I'm going to assume you don't sample it from Mars, right? Do you just make up a kind of similar solution or? Sampling it from Mars would be amazing and very expensive. (laughs) And also probably slightly ethically questionable at the moment. There have been no sample returns from Mars so far because of practical and ethical considerations. Well, suppose that um, we had a sample return and it did contain some you know, living Martian life, and it was like a virus that wipes out the human race. <laughs> so you have to take that sort of thing into consideration when you're working with environments that could harbor life. Like it might be very unlikely that Mars still harbors life, but it is not impossible. For example, with the moon sample return wasn't such so much of an ethical consideration because it was with the moon it was less, less of an ethical consideration because the moon is pretty much definitely lifeless, whereas Mars might not be. So, yeah, it would probably be good if we could not have another pandemic caused by a Mars virus. <laughs> so there, yeah, there are some sort of considerations like that. I think there are plans for sample returns in the next little while. It's, it's also very expensive to send things back as well. So do you just mix up a solution like in the lab of something you think is what's there? Because I'm assuming these solutions are actually way more complex than we could actually imagine them. 
So, yeah, so exactly. I work with um, pure solutions and binary mm. mixtures. So that's just a mixture of two different brines. And obviously in real life, there would be lots of impurities mm -hmm. and soil and all sorts of bits as well. And it's not like it's going to be a nice, tidy, perfect 50-50 mixture mm -hmm. of two brines, but obviously we've got to start yeah. somewhere. So yeah, I just, I just mix them up from, I just take the, the salt and then mix it with water <laughs> until it's saturated. And I, cause I work with saturated brines just cause it is much quicker to produce yeah. that right. So if you use a saturated yeah. brine. Could you potentially use this work on other planets or could you bring it even down to earth geology and <laughs> earth brines? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very relevant for, for earth as well. Um, there are lots of environments on earth where there are brine evaporites where, and microbes inhabit these evaporites. So in, in some places, they're actually an oasis for life in the Atacama Desert, which is in the, in the hyper-arid region of the Atacama Desert. Pretty much absolutely no life. It's because of the extreme conditions of heat and solar radiation and aridity. It's very mm -hmm. hot. It's very dry. But there are these salt deposits which do have microbes living in them because they protect them from the radiation. Mm. Um, they can hold moisture because the salts are deliquescent, which just means that the salts can... Mm -hmm. um, absorb moisture from the air and it just produces this oasis for microorganisms to live even in this really extreme desert. Do you find inspiration something? <laughs> I mean I like gardening and that has a lot of life involved in it I suppose. Um, there, are, there are so many cycles in the soil that involve microorganisms where we could you know we couldn't have life on earth in the way that we do without these microorganisms doing what they do in the soil and the plants producing oxygen and all of these things that produce this habitable environment that we live mm -hmm. on. And I think I would, I would love to do, I would love to do some space horticulture. That would be oh. very cool. I know that they grow things on the international space station. I think that doing research in that would be very interesting. That's so cool. So if any space horticulturists are listening, then <laughs> give me a postdoc. <laughs> the people doing the growing on the ISS must yeah. be kind of space horticulturalists looking at it like that is even things that are just done out of curiosity's sake that they still have useful applications um so for example if i if we were looking at growing potatoes on mars mm -hmm. for example even though the soil is horrible and you really don't want to grow potatoes there maybe by doing that kind of work you would discover a way of growing crops in other in climates that are very extreme on earth and that could be useful you know that it's surprising some mm. of the things that come out of research yeah. that are completely separate or seem completely different from the, the original idea behind the work a lot of the work that we do is is applicable in so many other ways not just to do with looking for life in other places it, there are so many discoveries that are made accidentally through mm -hmm. unrelated research and for example things like um life support systems um, in the ISS have been used, I think, in medical physics and that kind of thing. Oh, cool. I'm not actually exactly sure what they're used for. Yeah, so, and and there are so many people doing directly useful work. <laughs> I think it's good to be curious as well. I guess you, you never know what, what it could produce. You also host a podcast or hosted a podcast, I'm not sure, called The Tartan Tardigrade really really cool name of a podcast so can you tell us more about the podcast but also like how you came up with the idea or the name 
Yeah, so I actually didn't come up with the the idea or the name. The podcast existed before I started my PhD. Oh, okay. So the idea of the the idea of the podcast is so uh, the UK Centre for Astrobiology has a seminar series mm. um, where we put on a seminar. We invite an astrobiologist or somebody who's doing work that's astrobiology adjacent to come and give a seminar about once a month. The idea of the podcast was to have a more sort of informal discussion with them. And it, so it's more accessible as well. And not only about the specific work that they're presenting, but their work in general, how, how they got to be doing what they're doing, what their path was, that kind of thing, what they want to do in the future, advice they want to give to early career researchers. So that's the idea behind the podcast. And I took it over not long before COVID struck everything down. Uh, so I haven't actually, no. unfortunately, haven't been able to do very many of them. <laughs> so I think I've hosted maybe two or three of them. I've helped with other ones as well so co-hosted them before that but yes I can't take credit for the idea <laughs> but the name I guess is just because tardigrades were a hot topic a few years ago in astrobiology because they're these micro animals that are extremely resilient um, and can exist in really combinations of extreme conditions I think they've been exposed to actual space like on the outside of the ISS and survived that's so cool <laughs> they're very cool little animals but anyway they were very very pop popular and a few years ago and i guess tartan because it's the university of edinburgh scottish university so tartan tartigrade but we've had really interesting people you know a lot of them are, are scientists um who are telling us about their body of research and we've had such a range of people but also we've had a theologist mm. as well chatting to us about that aspect of the universe and how astrobiology fits in, which was really cool. Oh, that's cool. And also, I think a philosopher. That is so cool. And he was discussing the, the way that we decide what science we're going to look into and whether we should adjust how we do that by basically like randomly picking projects instead of presenting them to a you know grant proposal instead of producing a grant proposal and all of that and going through that process just having having a sort of like picking a random thing out of a hat and going okay we'll fund that wow and we'll see what comes out of it so that was sort of his idea of, of like exploring whether that would be an interesting way of doing science which was a you know a really interesting discussion yeah so yeah it's it's been really good but the seminar series is on pause at the moment but it should be starting in september one thing I would be keen on a on a definition because I definitely don't know the answer to this one is what what is the definition of a Martian of a Martian? Yeah, because I think you mentioned you study Martian brines at some point, and the actual word Martian it, to me a Martian is an alien. Like that is all I know of Martian being. But what's the actual like? What is a Martian? Oh, okay. So <laughs> when I say Martian brine, I just mean a brine that could have existed on Mars. So like when I am saying a Martian brine, I'm I'm sort of projecting and saying this brine has existed on Mars. It, it might not have, but I'm just assuming that it has and, and therefore calling it a Martian brine. Maybe potential Martian brines might be better. I think I've, I think I've just had a, like an aha moment. Does Martian specifically relate only to Mars? Yes. Oh my God. I've never known that. I thought <laughs> Martian, I honestly thought Martian meant just like space. But did or like something that exists oh, no, in space. Okay. I've never just linked that to Mars, but now I read it and like Mar, Mars, Martian. That's a very good point. No, that's that's actually a really good point. Yeah. So the Martians in Mars Attacks are Martians because they are extraterrestrial beings from Mars. 
So when I'm saying Martian, I mean relating to Mars. Whereas if I was discussing something more generally, I would call it extraterrestrial. Oh my god. <laughs> well, I suppose why would you if you had if you'd never thought about it, then like why wouldn't you think that? Of course, because in in pop culture, it's, the aliens never come from anywhere else, do they? Yeah, they're always from Mars. To be fair, like. It, it is kind of one of those pop culture things like extraterrestrial just means outside of the terror or like earth like martian just sounds like something outside of earth <laughs> i have a feeling that like everyone listening is going to be like obviously that's so obvious and then there will be me and maybe a handful of others who are like wait what <laughs> i'm gonna have to go away now and like have a nap and digest all that information <laughs> I've seen someone call like moon moon aliens, not that moon aliens exist, but if they did, lunarians, which I think was quite good. Oh, I love it. These are like great dog names. I wonder if there are people studying life on the moon, even though it's, is it a settled science that like there's, we're never going to find life on the moon and there never has been? I mean, I guess nothing is really a settled yeah. science, but I think that the, the <laughs> people are pretty confident the field i think is pretty confident that there is no li- well actually okay so i'm going to say there's no life on the moon but i think a craft was sent to the moon not long ago a couple of years ago and it crash landed and it had tardigrades in it that they were meant to be used for experiments on the moon but now they're just all over the moon no <laughs> so there's life on the moon <laughs> We've colonized. Oh. We've literally colonized the moon. How have we done that? The thing, the thing with tardigrades, though, is they they won't be. They might still be like alive, but they won't be living. They'll be in, okay. like, in a ton state, so like in a mm. in like a sort of hibernation state. Mm. Um, so it's not like they're invaders at that point. They're not an invasive species. <laughs> I need to check that this isn't this is true, and I've not been wound up because. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to fact check a little, but that would be really interesting. You're giving us like the spiel that you've been told of like, what we tell the public is they're not going to colonize. They're in a hibernating state. They don't go anywhere. But like the people who actually did it are like, oh God, we've colonized the moon. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Because that would be the first then, first bit of life to actually. Well, probably not because... Even, I think everything that is sent to the moon and Mars is, well, I mean, everything that is sent to Mars is sterilized pretty well, I think, to prevent any colonization occurring. But I don't think they do that with the moon to the same extent. Don't quote me on that, but I, I, I don't think they do, just hmm. because it's so sort of accepted that the moon is dead and there's nothing there that could. So like if we accidentally release tardigrades on the moon or some other organism and for whatever reason they survived, which wouldn't be likely, but let's say that they yeah. did, there's not any indigenous life that they could overtake and kill. So it's not so much of an ethical question as, for example, on Mars, where there could be indigenous life right. and to send Earth life there, which could kill it, would be a tragedy. Thank you so much to Ophelia for joining us on the episode and answering all of our questions about life outside the Earth, even our really stupid questions. If you want to learn more about Ophelia's work, then you can follow her work online. We'll link to that in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Media. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university 
and beyond. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or a suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI, that's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com, and you can find the show notes in the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. This episode was hosted by Hannah Muir and me, Lily Prodi. The podcast logo was designed by USI Chief Editor, Apple Chu, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama by Kevin McLeod, and the outro music is an edited version of Footballs in Space by Professor Colin Campbell. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it science! Oh, sorry. Sorry, who's here? <laughs> for anyone listening, a, a bunny <laughs> just arrived. So cute! <laughs> sorry, you can cut this if you want. <laughs> Um, the moment, of course, that I start recording something, he's on the table. Um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Um, he's, he's sitting on my knee now. <laughs>